0: Nervous habits.
1: How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. We are almost in um Taurus season. <laughs> if I'm if I'm saying that correctly, I'm not. I've never been big on zodiac signs. Uh, actually, I misspoke. Um, we're still in Aries season. Uh, so it goes Aries and then Taurus. I'm a Taurus. So April 20th to May 20th. I'm uh, May 13th for all those listening that are looking to send me birthday. Ah, uh, birthday wishes next month um i wonder how many people how many people listening can actually name all the uh all the zodiac signs i could probably i mean i'm I'm looking at the thing in front of me but if i wasn't i could probably name five of them <laughs> i'm so bad at that someone will say like they have a june birthday i'd be like oh that's that's virgo right no that's definitely capricorn I i like truthfully have no idea um taurus uh, what sign is more likely to take a six hour bath followed by a luxurious Swedish massage and decadent dessert spread? Why Taurus, of course. So, you know, this is bullshit because I don't, I never take baths and I'm way too neurotic and restless to take a bath longer than like 10 minutes if I did take a bath. Um, and I don't eat sweets. So, <laughs> sorry to burst your bubble if you're one of those people that believes in zodiac signs. And Aries, if you're celebrating a birthday this month. Loves to be number one. Naturally, this dynamic fire sign is no stranger to competition. Bold and ambitious. Aries dives headfirst into even the most challenging situations. See, that one sounds more like me. Um, be that as it may, we are in – be that as it may. Be that as it April. We are in um, early April. Hope everyone is, is doing great, is staying healthy um, as spring is upon us. Um, one, we wanted to start this episode on a positive note just because the topic is a little bit of a downer. Um, we'll be talking about heartbreak. And broken relationships and divorce and separation and anguish and sadness and grief um, and you probably knew that when you clicked on the episode but if you're wondering like why did I want to cover these topics I mean I long time listeners will know that i've I've discussed relationships attachment dating before going back to like the third episode when I talked about like modern dating um, particularly with dating apps and social media and that's something I, I explored with. Uh, John Berger, I think it was last year on Datanomics, the kind of the dating game, and I've talked about attachment style and love languages and with my sister at various points. Um, and a friend of mine recommended this book um, that uh, I that they came across, and it's called Heartbreak: um, A Personal and Scientific Journey by a woman, a journalist named Florence Williams, and it's all about kind of her individual experience of um, you know, recovering from, from separation after a 25 year marriage. And the book isn't just about heartbreak. It, you know, it also covers topics like loneliness, um, you know, in general, how sadness and grief affects the immune system and the body. You know, the science behind falling in love as well as the science behind rejection and, and breaking up. So there's a lot of like meaty material in this conversation. Um, and, you know, a couple minutes when, when we end up talking, when you end up hearing my conversation with Florence, you'll also see that uh, there's – you know, there's there's a lot of her personal experience interwoven with research and data and experiments that she done. I uh, experiments that she's done. I love that she kind of like made herself like the subject of the experiment, um, which you'll hear about. So there's a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, in my conversation with Florence, I don't really talk too much about my personal experiences with heartbreak. Um, I want to keep the focus on her and on the science and on the data. Um, you know, and I thought about coming on here with you guys in the introduction and. Um, you know sharing my uh 29 years of um rejection and uh sadness and and you know the experience that I I've had with breakups because believe me there's been <laughs> there's been a lot uh my close friends and family can attest to that um but i don't know like first of all everything i've experienced pales in comparison to that of um you know someone like florence coming out of a 25 year marriage like i've never been uh, married and consequently never been divorced. Also, like to be honest, a lot of that stuff just seems like so long ago. The interesting thing I, I had a uh, a dating expert on, a relationship expert, two years ago, and we talked about how every relationship is a lesson, and I've learned so much from my past romantic relationships that at this point, you know, I think I remember I've like taken all of the good that, you know, that I can from them. And I, I remember the lessons, but all of the actual like experiences, it just, I don't know, they seem like pretty far into the distant past. I mean, maybe in the, you know, following the episode, I'll do a debrief and review my conversation uh, with Florence, but maybe I'll share, um, some experiences that I had, you know, uh, and talking about heartbreak. I mean, yeah, I, and yeah, maybe I will, <laughs> maybe I'll just kind of thinking, just kind of thinking about it now um and i mean after i talked to florence a lot of those experiences kind of came to mind as well um but what else do i want to share with you so it is yeah it is it is a heavy conversation so i wouldn't you know necessarily listen to it if you're having a a tough day right um but i do think that you can learn a lot about um about yourself, and about your relationships, regardless of, you know, I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this who are, who are going through breakups right now, because um, it's inevitable, right? Everyone, Everyone's uh, breaking up, and it's like that old song, like, breaking up's hard to do. So some people listening might be going through breakups. Some people listening might um, have gone through breakups in the recent, you know, last year or two. Some people listening might be Part of those fortunate few who have never gone through breakups. Maybe you, you've never dated or you've never you've been with the same person. Um, some people listening might be going through divorce. Some people listening might have breakups right around the corner. You might be in like a tough relationship that you're not sure how to get out of. So I do think there's, you know, this is one of those episodes that's pretty universal in its applicability. Um, everyone, you know, uh, gay, straight, bi, whatever sort of coupling you're in, monogamous, polygamous, like – I think, as I said, breakups are a part of it. And, and, um, there's differences to how men and women, um, deal with breakups and, and, uh, I think that's one of many variables that we explore. But, but let me – I guess let me just say, say a couple words about Florence before we uh, pivot to the conversation. So Florence Williams is a journalist, author, and podcaster. She's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and a freelance writer for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, National Geographic, New York Review of Books, Slate, Mother Jones, and numerous other publications. She's also the writer and host of two Gracie Award-winning Audible original series, Breasts Abound uh, – excuse me, Breasts <laughs> Breast Unbound. Freudian slip there. Uh, and The Three-Day Effect, as well as Outside Magazine's Double X Factor podcast. Her public speaking includes keynotes at Google, the Smithsonian, Seattle Zoo, the Aspen Ideas Festival, and many other corporate, academic, and nonprofit venues. And as I just mentioned, her latest book is Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey, and that's what we discussed in this episode. So I'm going to have a lot more to say after our conversation just because I think we were a little more crunched for time than, uh, than I usually am with these conversations. So uh, there were a bunch of things that we didn't get a chance to talk about. So make sure to stick around after the episode is over for my debrief um, where we talk about kind of the main takeaways of the conversation. But without further ado, my conversation with Florence Williams. Florence Williams, welcome to Nervous Habits.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here.
1: Thanks. Thanks for joining me. I I was so moved and touched uh, hearing about your experience as as told in your book. If you wouldn't mind sharing for listeners who haven't yet read Heartbreak, what, what exactly motivated you to start the journey in writing the book?
0: Well, I'm a science journalist. And this is my third book. With all my books, I'm I'm sort of motivated, you know, I would say by, you know, at least loosely by events in my own life, you know, what's driving my curiosity. Um, so for this book, unfortunately, uh, I did suffer a heartbreak, and it was a pretty big one, marriage of 25 years. Uh, and when I was 50 years old, uh, you know, my, my then husband um, decided he didn't want to stay in the marriage. And I had never experienced heartbreak before. You know, I had been with him really my entire adult life. And I was so kind of knocked out by, you know, how much it hurt, but also how much my body and my immune system seemed to register those emotions. And so that's what really launched me down this sort of science journalist path of trying to understand, you know, what was going on. And then, of course, how I could get better.
1: Yeah. And I, and I definitely want to talk to you throughout the conversation about sort of the research that you did and, and your own observations on how, um, your, uh, you know, your separation impacted, uh, your physiology, your body, your immune system, things like that. But it, it is interesting, um, kind of, you know, taking a, a an empirical approach to this. It, there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of research out there on how, um, you know, on the science behind breaking up relative to, the ample research that that exists on on what what happens in the body when someone falls in love. So, so why do you think this disparity exists?
0: Yeah, that's right. And I, I also think there was so much sort of art about heartbreak. You know, there's a lot of popular songs. There's a lot of music, um, a lot of poetry, but I didn't see a lot of science. I didn't, you know, I wasn't aware of a lot of science. And I think, you know, for researchers, it's probably more fun to study why people fall in love or what happens to our brains when we fall in love. Uh, I don't think we have, you know, as, as a culture sort of taken heartbreak as seriously as we should. I think we tend to think it's just sort of like melodramatic and, you know, country music appropriate, um, you know, but, but then, you know, once I got into it, it was like, whoa, there's actually this whole world out there that we are starting to understand you know, of the way that our our immune cells, the way that our, our bodies, you know, process this kind of social pain that's mm-hmm. very layered, very complex, and it has real health consequences. As one of the researchers I talked to told me, he said, you know, heartbreak is one of the hidden landmines of human existence. And so it was curious to me why people haven't studied it more
1: Mm. Some of the research that that you did highlight in the book, and and some listeners might be familiar with is uh, that done by biological anthropologist, uh, Dr. Helen Fisher, and you actually note that there there was an experiment that showed that feelings of rejection can actually uh, mirror or, or can appear similar to feelings of intense, romantic love. So can you tell listeners a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, there are a couple of parts of the brain that light up when people who've been rejected in love, you know, go into a scanner and then look at pictures of their, you know, departed loved one. Um, and, and these are parts of the brain that are actually associated, uh, again, with, with intense romantic love, because maybe you still are feeling some love for this person, but also parts of the brain associated with craving and addiction. So it's almost like, you know, you've gotten used to having this person around for years, or in my case, decades. There are, you know, happy hormones associated with that, bonding hormones. It just it's, you know feelings of safety, and when that person suddenly leaves, um, you know you you miss those happy hormones. You miss the the dopamine. You sort of go into the serotonin depletion, and you crave them. You want them back for a while anyway. And and there's another part of the brain though, you know, it just keeps getting kind of complicated. There's another part of the brain activated that is really almost the exact same part, very similar overlay as with physical pain. So, you know, it's like, you're having a toothache and a cocaine addiction at the same time.
1: Uh, that's, I mean, I, I definitely, um, I'm not surprised to, to hear that. I mean, a lot of, you mentioned art and, and, um, you know, depictions and experiences of, of, uh, heartache. And, and I think that people would, would report having experienced that. And, um, and and you know, we we have more examples of that that we can speak about in a moment. Helen Fisher also uh, spoke to you about what she believes to be the two main stages of uh, breakup. Um, so, I mean, what are these, and do you believe that that every you know separation follows follows this cycle?
0: Yeah, I don't know, but according to her, you know, we we go through these phases first, where um, we are sort of bargaining. And, and trying to get the person back, you know, not quite believing this is happening. There's sort of a bargaining phase. And then finally, there's a resignation phase where we've kind of accepted that this is what's going to happen, although we may not be happy about it. Um, and uh, we, our bodies kind of register those in two different ways. You know, when we're in the sort of bargaining phase, we may be really frenetic and sort of, you know, a little bit desperate. Our bodies are acting like they're gearing up for a fight. You know there's a sort of um, those fight or flight hormones, a lot of um, norepinephrine, a lot of adrenaline sort of coursing through our bodies. And then with the resignation phase, that's more the sort of depression. That's when depression can set in. That's when you're really feeling the depletion of these happy hormones.
1: Okay. So bargaining or uh, protest and then resignation. Are these, these stages similar to what, what you experienced or what you have experienced in the past?
0: Yeah, I, it did resonate with me. Um, for sure. I, I think that, I, I think that maybe the, the protest phase didn't last that long. I mean, I think, you know, it was pretty clear, you know, when my husband left that he was leaving. And at that point I didn't really want him to come back, you know, it was like, okay, this door is closing, but there was still a lot of stress associated with that phase. Um, Still a lot of fight or flight hormones, just because I really did feel um, like I had lost my kind of um, safety net. And I was now, my body was sort of registering that this as, you know, kind of wandering across the prairie by myself, um, because our bodies don't really make the distinction between being abandoned or rejected in love, and mm-hmm. literally feeling like we've been left alone in the jungle.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, l- later on, I want to kind of talk about the impact of, of time on, on recovery, and, and how that plays into this. But do you think that in terms of sort of scaling how long each stage is um, if, if we accept the the uh, two-factor framework laid out by Dr. Fisher, uh, protest and and resignation. Do you think that, generally speaking, most people that go through breakups, divorces, uh, divorces, separations, spend significant amount of time in protest and then resignation happens at the end or protest uh, is, is pretty short-lived and then resignation is, is really what, what takes up the most time?
0: I think, you know, it's probably one of those things that's really different for everyone. Just like grief looks different for different people and the sort of trajectory of recovery looks different. I mean, we've all been told that there are these sort of classic stages, right, of grief. Um, but I think that's been largely debunked. I mean, some people don't go through all those stages. Some people go through them in a totally different order. <laughs> so this yeah. is where your where your culture comes into play. This is kind of where I think maybe your your past you know, childhood traumas or other traumas come into play, your personality comes into play. Um, mm. so I, I really think it's 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 hard to predict exactly, you know, how long those stages last. And and I also think, and, and I talk a lot about this, that that when you talk about sort of the stages of grief, one of the missing stages that that people are now starting to speak of more is anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was kind of this missing stage of grief, and I think that's maybe the one that that sort of fits into the protest stage that Helen talks about. Um, but I think for for a lot of us who grieve, um, we have this anxiety, you know, for the future.
1: For sure, no, no, I I, I definitely think that that's that's dead on, and that actually, um, you know, sort of sort of leads nicely into the in, into the the impact that breaking up can have on the body, because as is the case with physiological manifestations of anxiety disorders, Uh, probably one of the largest takeaways I had from, from reading your book is that people underestimate the degree to which, you know, undergoing this, this level of heartbreak can, can lead to real physical sensations and, and, physical symptoms. Uh, One of the most salient examples you gave Florence is uh, the woman. um, I don't know if it was, it was a colleague or or a friend, but the woman named Emma. Uh, Can, can you explain Mm -hmm. what, what her experience was, you know, was like?
0: Yes. So uh, we, you know, we think of heartbreak often, I think as a metaphor, right. But (laughs) it turns out that our, our, our arteries and our our veins, our, our our cardiovascular system really feels the impact of deep emotion. And so Emma is someone I knew, um, she was introduced to me by another friend who at 41 years old collapsed from heart failure. And this was after uh, she'd broken up with her boyfriend. Her boyfriend had gotten someone else pregnant and um, she experienced what's called Takatsubo cardiomyopathy, which is what happens when there's a flood of uh, adrenaline, sort of big pump of stress hormones that um, kind of overwhelms the receptors in our heart as an organ. And the, the left ventricle, so one of the quadrants of the, brain, of the heart sort of balloons out and becomes unable to pump. She was okay, but you know, about five percent of people who suffer this kind of of heart failure um, don't make it, and another twenty percent go on to have increased risk of cardiovascular disease um, for the rest of their lives. Uh,
1: talk. I, I want to make sure uh, listeners are, are are getting that that um, that name. Ta- Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Yes. So I mean, it, it sounds to me that that. You know, this is evidence that in some cases, as you said, some small percentage of people that undergo this level of, of anguish and d- distress can quite literally die from a broken heart. This is something that we talked earlier about how there's, you know, kind of a, a dearth of research in this area, uh, you know, why I think um, the science of heartbreak should be taken a little bit more seriously.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and there was a large-scale study, I think it was in Denmark, that showed that after a divorce or a big romantic split, that your risk of heart attack increases between nine and 24% for up to nine years after the split. That's in women. And um, that's in women uh, who are young. I think it was like, you know, under 50. Um, For men, the risk seems a little bit smaller uh, in that age range, but then they go on to have other uh, other health risks associated with divorce that, uh, that, that, women don't have.
1: Hmm. I'm curious why that, why that might be the case in the book. You write that uh, breaking up is worse for women physically than for men. And, and you just highlight later in life, men, men might have um, uh, deleterious health outcomes. Why do you think that this, this uh, distinction exists?
0: Well, I think, I think the way I described it in the book, the way it was explained to me is that um, for women emotionally, the heart, the heartbreak is, is deeper. Um, And it's because in general, these are all, you know, averages, but in general, women sort of are more relational. They identify more, their social roles are more defined sort of by their relationships, um, you know, particularly in a long marriage. Uh, Whereas men may take blows to their job status um, you know, more, more deeply, uh, at least emotionally. But then if, if men don't remarry, mm-hmm. um, they will go on to have more, uh, health problems as sort of divorced men, uh, later on in life. So, and, and that's probably because at least men of a certain generation, you know, who are sort of, you know, older and divorced now, um, are not as good at maintaining their social networks. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're divorced, they're not as good at maybe going to the doctor. Um, they may drink more. They may smoke more. Um, you know, sort of develop more bad habits um, after divorce if they don't get remarried.
1: That's so interesting. So, so it depends on on coping mechanisms, uh, having a, a social support system in place, and whether or not. Uh, the divorce is, is leads to permanent isolation for for the man or not. I think that that definitely makes a lot of sense. In the book, you talk about Zoe Donaldson and how she did research with prairie voles, and I had to actually look look <laughs> up prairie voles to know what they were. They're uh, really spe- cute <laughs> <laughs> species of, of rodent, apparently. Um, to evaluate breakups and divorce. So, so why do, you know, this, this uh, almost like ferrets or hamster-looking creatures, wh- why do they make such good subjects for this kind of research?
0: Yeah, well, prairie voles in particular are one of the few other mammals out there that pair bond. So they're monogamous, you know, like we are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think only about 5% of mammals are, actually. And uh, what's, what's interesting about prairie voles is that their cousins, um, meadow voles, are not monogamous. And so by looking at the differences in their brains, you know, scientists can start to sort of home in on what it is that makes a brain monogamous. You know, what is it about our brains um, that we have in common perhaps with prairie voles, uh, that's different from the metovolals. And um, there are all sorts of interesting kind of explanations that they found having to do with, you know, different hormone receptors in certain parts of the brain especially that encode for memory.
1: So so uh, assuming that sort of the the analogical structure of the brain is is similar in, in prairie voles and, and in humans, what what kind of you know observations can we make in terms of how how we can recover from heartbreak by looking at prairie voles?
0: Well, we know in a lab, if you if you pair up uh, some pra- prairie voles, and then you you separate them, so you sort of create a little heartbreak hotel, a little prairie vole divorce. Um, we know that the the prairie voles, uh, you know, uh, on their own, will definitely miss their partner, and they'll work pretty hard to try to reunite with their partner. So if, you mm-hmm. know, if you like hide their partner behind a a little trap door, and you give the, the remaining prairie a lever to push, uh, to try to, you know, gain access to their mate. They'll do it again. Even if you kind of dangle a new potential mate in front of them, they'll still want their old mate, but not forever. You know, eventually they'll sort of be like, well, okay, that, that, that mate is not available anymore. I, I'm eventually going to turn my affections over to this new mate. So they are able to make the shift. Um, and we know that if you manipulate their brains in certain ways, maybe they can make the shift faster. So, um, you know, for example, if you can kind of, um, you know, sort of erase the memories in some ways or deactivate the memories of their loved one, um, or you can even by giving them um which is a drug that looks like it may help these prairie voles kind of adjust to the new reality of not having their mate. Um, so that's one thing. But we also know that these prairie voles get really stressed out in the absence of their mate. So they produce a lot more cortisol. Um, they, um, they are very distressed. They will not explore their environments as much. They will act more paranoid. They will sort of hide in corners. Um, they'll sort of give up more quickly. If you put these, these tests are sort of really mean, actually, if you put them in like a beaker of water, they'll stop trying to swim. To escape, you know, if they're heartbroken, um, and and we and we think that that may be sort of an analog for depression. So, um, you know, our our brains are telling us something. Heartbreak seems to be there for a reason, and it seems to be long evolved in the mammalian brain. And I guess you know that's that was interesting to me. It's like why would heartbreak hurt so much? Why do we get so stressed out? And it seems like the answer may be so that we are motivated to try to get them back um, or to wait for them if they're gone for a while. Um, because if we do wait for them, you know, we have greater survival chances in terms of us and our offspring down the road.
1: It's so interesting. The uh, uh, the first part of your response, when you spoke about how um, deactivating those memories of, of a past uh, vole mate, you know, w- would help them sort of move on to the next pair. Uh, I know in the book you you sort of referenced *Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind*, which is a, yeah, a terrific yeah. movie. And obviously, we're not we're not there yet um, no. with isolating and removing memories. But I think in terms of making the connection, like what's the implication on uh, a human you know human response to heartbreak? It almost seems to be, if I'm interpreting uh, the observations correctly, it almost seems to be in, uh, you know, implying that in order to properly heal from a heartbreak, we need to so, sort of find a way to, um, you know, focus less on our past experience of the relationship and, you know, withdraw from that, separate from that and find, find someone else. So I, I think, I don't know if, if that, if, if you agree with that.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, eventually we have to learn how to infuse those memories with less huge emotion less fear, less grief, less, less, we have, we have to be able to sort of have reminders perhaps of our ex, you know, maybe there's a photo, maybe once in a while they'll pop up on, on social media without completely breaking down, you know, you know, Absolutely. we can do that for a little while, but eventually um, we want to be able to sort of look at those photographs and go, okay, yeah, that's a memory, but I'm no longer completely broken up about it. Like right, that's like, the sign of sort of healthfully moving on, yeah. Exactly,
1: like dissociate between the either an object or a food or a TV show and, and the the person that um is called to mind when when you know you're you're faced with that stimulus. Speaking of Dr. Donaldson, one of the the more interesting uh, vignettes that that you wrote about is is her um, insight to you that one day she believes there might be a medicine that you can take. Imagine for listeners, imagine, you know, you go through a, a painful breakup and you just take take a, a pill, almost like um, an aspirin uh, in order to alleviate your broken heart. So assuming that this is a possibility, maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, how, how do you feel about that? Do you think that that would be a net positive for society or or would that be um, sort of a a, danger, a dangerous path to go down?
0: Yeah, I'm a little bit skeptical of it. First of all, I mean, we we know that we have all these psychotropic drugs that are a little bit disappointing, right? Yeah. So you know, coming up with these pharmaceuticals is no easy task. Um, I think you know potentially if there are some of us who are really unable to move on, really unable to function, debilitated by their grief, um, then those might be you know possible candidates for a drug. Um, but I think that for most of us, you know, these memories become a part of us. They become I'm a part. part of who we are. Our, our, our brains really are designed to move past grief and heartbreak eventually. Uh, and the process of it, you know, is something I came to kind of appreciate. Um, I learned so much, you know, from this pain, from this process. Um, I, I would not have wanted to just, you know, take a pill the morning my husband left and be fine. I would not have wanted that, you know, I learned so much from the suffering, you know, it's kind of a cliche that suffering does kind of make us, um, you know, better people. But I, I think in this case with heartbreak, it, it actually is often true.
1: I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I definitely echo your point on, on suffering and growth going hand in hand. I also think kind of um, from the like psychological perspective on the one hand, I think grief is a normal human emotion that we should yes. allow to run its yes. course. I have reservations about this modern tendency, Florence, and I've we've spoken about this on the pod before, but this modern tendency to just pop a pill rather than right. deal with any measure of discomfort or pain. But on the other hand, to your point, I do recognize that in some extreme cases, like with Emma and the um, yeah. cardiomyopathy condition, it's if someone is, is just Completely debilitated and unable to function, uh, a pill like this might be might be useful. So, so maybe somehow, if it could be narrowly tailored to a specific type of circumstance, it might it might be useful. But I just worry about uh, sort of the un- unintended consequences.
0: Well, and there's another unintended consequence that I, that we already know about that is kind of interesting, and and that is we know that if um, people feel rejected you know, they have this kind of social pain and they take a Tylenol, (laughs) you know, even, or an analgesic and, and probably also, you know, honestly, like marijuana, you know, Mm -hmm. also, and, and perhaps, you know, heroin, even, you know, these, there are substances we take that can kind of um, almost substitute um, the, the opiate receptors for love in our brains. If we take a Tylenol, we may actually feel less pain after we've been rejected, and, and scientists have shown this in computer games of people who get sort of just sort of left out of a computer game and they feel sad about it yeah. <laughs> because our brains are really very sensitive to this kind of social rejection. If they take a Tylenol, they'll feel better. But but the problem is they may also not be able to feel as much joy. Mm. So you're sort of flattening maybe their emotional range um, you know, in a way that has unintended consequences, because you don't want to be flattening the joy. And of course, that's a problem with heroin and opiate addiction as well.
1: Yeah, no, I know, and I've read similar things with uh, with SSRIs uh, and other yeah. and that antidepressants, were, where yeah, you're uh, you know, you're experiencing less uh, anguish and, and distress, but you're also, like you said, diminishing your capacity to experience joy and bliss and awe. Um, right. you know, right. it, speaking of, of drugs in the book, you talk about how drug use might be helpful for dealing with heartbreak in your experience. Uh, you, you mentioned having tried MDMA and then, uh, psilocybin mushrooms were either of those helpful or, or, uh, you know, how, how did that experience, uh, impact your, your journey?
0: yeah well, the caveat here is that uh you know for, well first of all, I did a lot of research into the science of awe and how awe may be a pathway for how some of these psychedelic substances are helping people for example with post traumatic stress or people who then there's quite a bit of emerging science on this people who have received a um, a diagnosis of a terminal disease so um, there's something about experiencing awe you know, in the context of these substances that may be very transformative um, to the point of even, you know, transcendence from these sort of um, painful events. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the first thing there. There really was science behind it. And then the second thing is that I I worked pretty hard to find a uh, clinician, you know, who was rigorous kind of in how she was helping clients um, take these substances and use them. Uh, in a very safe setting Uh, because there are, you know, of course there are street versions of these drugs. They're not going to work for people with certain kinds of mental health conditions and so on. So having said all that, my caveats um yeah i was willing to try it (laughs) i was definitely willing to try it i wanted to experience big awe i wanted a change in perspective i wanted to feel less fearful of my future and i think that in uh in my case the the substances actually really did help me do that just from even you know a one day um experience that i had
1: And do you think uh, I mean, I I mean, there's so many caveats with, um, you know, uh, recommending that people experiment with with drugs, even if it is under uh, the supervision of and care of a of a practitioner, just because for people with anxiety disorders um, or other forms of latent or Um, over psychosis, it might not be the best idea. But do you think in terms of like healing the traumatic memories that that you write about in the book, or just kind of coming to terms with solitude in that respect, either MDMA or uh, suicide mushrooms, or both might might be helpful?
0: So I mean, the evidence suggests that it might be, you know, and I think it depends, you know, on your particular circumstance on your particular um, sort of mental health history, and so on. Um, but, but it's actually one of the few things that is showing to be pretty effective for people with traumatic memories. So it kind of makes sense that it could work for heartbreak. The other thing is that MDMA alone, you know, ecstasy, uh, has been talked about sort of in the context of couples counseling. You know, that it can sort of help open people's hearts, make them a little bit less defensive so that they can be really honest with each other and yet empathetic and so on. So so we're seeing more couples counseling. Um, But I think for those same reasons, it can be sort of helpful for decoupling. It can be kind of an effective divorce drug.
1: That's really interesting, and I never never thought of it like that. The Uh, decoupling drug. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to go back to the effect that heartbreak has on the body, and we spoke about this a little earlier. So you write that uh, our immune systems are often compromised when we go through emotional turmoil. I think for people listening, they can probably relate to being in, like, high school or college and going through a breakup and then getting sick or not being able to eat and then catching a cold you know, based on your sort of your awareness and then also your subjective experience, why exactly do you think this happens?
0: I think it happens because of the way our brains process a big emotional pain, Uh, especially when it's coupled with a sense of abandonment or loneliness. Um, You know, we really feel imperiled. We feel like we're alone in the world. And When we feel alone in the world, you know, as humans, we're not really supposed to be alone in the world. It's not a safe place for humans to be in terms of our deep evolutionary past, right? I mean, the reason that we've kind of, you know, succeeded to the extent that we have as a species is because we have lived in groups uh, and we've helped each other and been cooperative. And so when you feel like you've been sort of kicked out of your clan or kicked out of your marriage, as the case may be, um your body, your your immune system literally changes the gene expression to pump out more inflammation. And it's doing this because it's expecting maybe you're going to be attacked by a predator. You're going to get some sort of flesh wound. The inflammation is going to help you fight that. Seems like a good idea. It seems like a reasonable response, um, you know, for for the moment. But the problem is if you end up feeling heartbroken or lonely for a long time, and unfortunately we live in a world where many people do feel lonely for, for long periods of time and more so than ever before, actually, um, and that was even before the pandemic, um, you know, these, th- this increased inflammation can lead to pretty serious risks of many diseases uh, and early death. So, I mean, people who divorced have a 23% increased risk of early death.
1: Mm. Yeah, there's so much literature out there. And and even before I read your book, we had this conversation about – um, k- kind of like the inflammation cycle where stress, uh, leads to inflammation, which leads to rapid aging, right? Like people, um, developing e- either gray hair or wrinkles or, or being at high risk, like you say, for a number of diseases and then premature death. So there is a link there, but what's interesting about, um, your, your particular experiences is, is, you know, this isn't con- conjecture. You, you actually did mo- molecular analyses of your blood samples, which, which is kind of really cool yeah. to like make yourself, um, a, t- a test subject, uh, when considering all these different variables. So, uh, what, what exactly did you find in doing this and actually like, like what kind of talk us through the process of, of having your blood samples recorded? Cause I know that, it, that you did it over, uh, multiple times over time.
0: Yeah. So I, I worked with a, a immunogeneticist at UCLA. Th- these are not tests that you can get in your doctor's office. Um, they're mm-hmm. pretty you know specialized looks inside your transcription factors, Um, specifically in your white blood cells. Um, And and, um, the scientist I worked with at UCLA, Stephen Cole, has identified a suite of about 200 genes that um, uh, upregulate or downregulate for our white blood cells, different different kinds of white blood cells responses to to, uh, threat and illness. And so uh, we looked at my blood, I think we first looked at it about, uh six or seven months after the split and then I went on this big river trip that I thought was really going to heal me and make me so much better and so we looked at my blood after that hoping to get a sort of before and after you know state of experiment mm-hmm. and then um and then we did another time sample uh about a year after that or, or something nine months after that um so yeah, we, we, we definitely were looking at the arc of time away from, from the, uh, you know, from the heartbreak.
1: Okay. So, so Steve Cole, uh, <clears throat> the genomics expert that you worked with was tracking, um, your, uh, you know, these, these, uh, the biometric, the, the signals, the indicators in your blood over time. Um, what exactly was, was he looking for? Were there specific markers of stress or inflammation that he was looking at?
0: Yeah, he was looking at these transcription factors that, that indicate an upregulation of a certain set of inflammatory genes and a downregulation of other genes that fight uh, viruses, actually. So we know that people who consider themselves kind of lonely are people who feel threatened, people who feel like they don't have a lot of social support. Uh, and we know this from really large scale studies, um, for example, the Chicago Aging study aging study that um, people are, have a reduced ability to fight viruses if they feel lonely at the same time that they're pumping out this sort of extra inflammation that it turns out they really don't need because in modern life, that inflammation just leads to bad diseases.
1: Yeah. I, I thought it really interesting in, in the book when you, when you wrote that one of your um, first uh, sessions with, with Steve Cole- he told you that, that, your cells look like those of a lonely person. It's just, yeah. inter- it's interesting. It's, it's interesting for, some, for, you mentioned going to the doctor's office, a doctor or, or some sort of geneticist takes your blood work and says, yeah, you're looking, you're looking lonely this you're week.
0: You're looking, looking lo- lonely this week. It, yeah, it looks, exactly. Like,
1: Yeah. You look, like you need to like get outside more. So, so, you know, looking for the upregulation or, or downregulation of those infl- inflammation markers was, was Steve Cole and, and his team able to see in your blood work over time that you were kind of coming to terms with your heartbreak? What, What did that trajectory look like?
0: Yeah, they really were. I mean, you know, we, as I said, we did, we tried these different interventions, and then kind of were able to look and see if they made a difference. You know, and eventually, perhaps personalized medicine will go that way, where you know, after a heartbreak, we can, you know, meditate or do yoga for a month, and then say hey, your immune cells are looking better after all this yoga, but they're not looking better after, you know, watching Netflix. Mm. Um, So that could be the future, which I think is kind of interesting. But for me, you know, the river trip was the big one. I I went into the wilderness for 30 days. We looked at my blood before and after. And um, unfortunately, my blood still looked like that of a lonely person. Mm. Um, After the river trip, it hadn't really improved. Uh, and that was disappointing, as you can imagine, um, because a, I wanted to get better, of course, but b, I also wanted to believe that nature, you know, could really be healing, um, as I had shown in my my second book that I wrote before this one, which was called The Nature Fix. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was really invested in that idea, and I'm sure nature did help me, but but going for 30 days into the wilderness, you know, m- m- much of that alone. Um, was not actually so good in terms of the loneliness markers, <laughs>
1: which makes sense
0: if you think about it.
1: I, yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, it is an, an interesting concept. I don't know. Are, are you familiar with uh, Inside Tracker? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yes, you probably know. Yeah, exactly. You probably know all about this. Um, and and listeners of the pod know because I've, I've spoken quite a bit on, on longevity and talked to people in the aging space. But I can definitely imagine in the future uh, kind of a, a, a some sort of infrastructure where you take a blood sample and instead of inside tracker where they look at your metabolic age and, you know, sort of whether or not based on your lifestyle, based on yoga or meditation, you're adding or subtracting years for life, they can have, they can do sort of the same analysis that you underwent where they look at, um, you know, do you need more social support? Uh, are you, you know, are you, uh, feeling like really low things like that? I could see becoming more mainstream, especially when you talked about with your experience, how effective it was for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, you know, the good news is that, you know, by whatever the second year after my split, um, my immune system was looking much better, so that was a relief because we were also heading into the pandemic, and uh, I wanted the ability to fight viruses, of course.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No, and Florence, and, and I'm really happy to hear that uh, things 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 were looking up after after everything you went through. Um, and part of your experience also involved uh, quite a bit of travel, and and you know, in one of the more interesting parts of the book, you talk about how you went to see someone called. The Minister of Loneliness uh, in, in, in the United Kingdom. I I had never heard of that, and I'd imagine people listening have never heard of the Minister of Loneliness. So who who is that, and, and how did you find your way over there?
0: Yeah, uh, so she was a member of Parliament. Her name was Mims Davies, and uh, she I think she was the second or third Minister of Loneliness. You know, the UK has taken loneliness really seriously, um, as it should, because we know now that loneliness uh, is as great a risk for death and disease as smoking, as obesity. Um, and, and yet, you know, we, we, we haven't really taken it that seriously, sort of in, inside the medical establishment. Mm. Um, so they are trying to pioneer a lot of programs to help people, um, you know, prevent these diseases by getting less lonely. So they have things like, um, um, what they call chatty buses, you know, people can ride the bus and, and meet people or knitting circles or walking groups. I went to visit, uh, one, one place called a men's shed, mm-hmm. Um, which is where, you know, a bunch of basically kind of old guys um, go, retired guys, and they, they, you know, have these power tools and they make birdhouses and they drink a lot of tea and they help each other learn how to, how to, you know, sometimes use these tools and, you know, they'll sit down and, 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 and they'll, you know, actually have someone to talk to. And uh, it's, they love it. They seem to love it.
1: You called it a, an adult kindergarten. Um, yeah. I, I
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard
1: of uh, adult camp, adult summer camps, like, like kind of experiences like that are more kind of kind of looked at as more eccentric in in America. I, I wonder why we don't have something like that. I mean, we're, we've got to be one of the loneliest countries out there. I don't know why from a public health perspective, we're not taking that as seriously as as countries like the UK.
0: Yeah, I wonder if after the pandemic, you know, uh, we're going to take it more seriously. Certainly, we've seen feelings of loneliness increase a lot. And Sadly, you know, we, we're really seeing it increase in young people, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of a surprise that sort of 18 to 34 um, age group seem to be experiencing a lot of, of self-reported loneliness. Uh, and, and I think it's something, you know, that, that we have to take seriously because it, it does lead to all kinds of, of problems, both mentally and physically.
1: I mean, from a policy perspective, it wouldn't really cost that much to create programs like what you alluded to in, in the UK, whether it be uh, having, you know, uh, a bus where people can can sit and and talk or um, like service projects or um, I mean, I guess they have volunteer opportunities and things like that. But it's a little bit different. I, I, I'm just, you know, and we could talk about kind of our our relationship with technology all day in the US. I think it's it's like that elsewhere. But, um, yeah, I, as you said, I, I don't see this problem as, as getting better anytime yeah. soon. Um, so I, I would love to see some, um, some sort of public acknowledgement of that, uh, or even setting up a, a place like, uh, the museum of broken relationships, which is another thing I, I read the book and I was like, this is so interesting. I don't know how you even found out that it existed. And that was in Croatia, right?
0: That was in Croatia, but, you know, just getting back for one second to your, to the idea of preventing loneliness. Unfortunately, you know, our medical model uh, is not set up to deal with prevention, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, in the UK, they're very motivated to prevent disease because it's, you know, socialized medicine. Um, mm-hmm. We don't do that. We have a sort of like, you know, pay for it when you get sick model and that's how people profit. And um, so it's just not, baked into our system to have those kinds of preventative social prescriptions like they have there, um, unfortunately. Um, So yeah, the Museum Broken Relationships, uh, I had heard about that. And, you know, I, I was so interested in the fact that we don't really ritualize heartbreak. Like we do other big life events, you know, even the negative ones, right? We, you know, there are funerals for people who die. We don't have a funeral for uh, for for a divorce or for a marriage that that dies. Mm-mm. And the Museum of Broken Relationships is an attempt to try to rectify that by um, having people send in objects that represent their relationship or that represent their heartbreak. They can write a little description of what the object is. Um, The curators put these objects under glass, (laughs) you know, and it looks all very beautiful. And the objects are hilarious. I mean, sometimes it'll be just like a water bottle, you know, that your boyfriend once gave you on a beach, Mm. um, you know, or an exercise bicycle you know, that you caught your, your wife's lover on. And and there's, you know, there's like this description (laughs) of it. Um, But walking through this museum is such an amazing experience because all of a sudden you feel like, oh, yeah, heartbreak is this totally universal condition. We all go through it sooner or later. Um, We all feel like it's a dramatic, life-changing event, potentially for a while and um here it is sort of laid out for everyone to experience and for us to sort of experience together it's like the mm-hmm. museum's really crowded you know everyone's walking through it reading these sweet little descriptions um and there's this sense of um just kind of um feeling like it's not such a lonely experience it's it was really cool
1: <laughs> that's incredible i mean I, th- there is there is almost a uh... Um, there's some, there's something beautiful. And, and I think in the book, you said, uh, having the space for reflection when relationships end, instead of just brushing it under the rug and never acknowledging it and codifying the wounds of a breakup. Um, those, those were words from your book, having it be a shared universal experience, turning it into a story. There's so many possibilities there. And also from like uh, a utility perspective, a lot of times when a relationship ends and, and to your point here, uh, you just have a lot of stuff that, that you know, has, um, value. I mean, you know, sometimes I guess you can donate it or sell it, but, uh, why or not burn it <laughs> or, or burn it or burn it as, as um, as sure.
0: maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: and, and, and I think, uh, having having a space for these objects um is is remarkable i mean i it, i think it, it it might be kind of funny if you walk through the museum of broken relationships with someone and you kind of look at each other and it's like you know are we going to end up here <laughs> one day you know what i'm saying if it's like a short lived relationship is this is this our future um but so people so so can listeners actually donate artifacts from past relationships to the museum oh, yeah. or so yeah. how does that work
0: yeah, so you just mail it in. You mail it in, and you there. there are guidelines, you know, on their website. Museum of mm-hmm. Broken Relationships. Actually, they before the pandemic they had traveling exhibitions, so you know you could you visit it potentially, um, you know, in your country wherever you are. Although they haven't done that for a while. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, you send it in with a little description, and then they rotate these objects in and out of the display cases. So your object may end up you know, getting, getting sort of full public um, attention. And, uh, and then I think it's so what, what, the, what the, the head of the museum was telling me also was just in the act of, you know, sending it, getting rid of it. And then in the act of sort of writing this two paragraph narration, that's also very healing. It mm-hmm. creates a little bit of a sense of closure because now you have a story with a beginning, a middle and an end um which is of course what my book ended up being you know sort of writ large it was a lot more than two paragraphs but there's really a value in sort of narrating your side of this experience
1: yeah there's there's no doubt that that there you know part of the the catharsis comes from just telling the story and and um it's almost like ritualistic letting go uh i'm wondering is is it anonymized is your name attached to the submissions or no no
0: mm-mm. okay no, so
1: no. I, okay cuz uh, i wonder I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check it out. Check it out after the, um, some of the objects are
0: so funny. I mean like this, you know, a a, a couple of women have sent in their breast implants, Mm. you know, that were (laughs) given to them by their husbands or their boyfriends. And they're like, he's gone. I want these out too.
1: Oh my gosh. I mean, it's just,
0: it's funny.
1: Uh, that's very funny. I didn't even, some of this stuff I didn't even know existed. Um, so the, the, the book is, uh, excellent, excellent kind of platform for, uh, at kind of marketing and advertising, all these different like heartbreak, um, you know, uh, spaces to, to discuss that. Uh, I, I do want to talk to you, kind of, an, um, the last topic of our conversation about kind of concretely what worked for you in your recovery and what didn't, because uh, I know you tried to you tried to laugh, Lawrence. Um, yeah. The first thing uh, is, is, uh, you know, is solitude because the conventional wisdom when you go through a breakup is surround yourself with as many people as you can. You don't want to be alone. You don't want to be sitting with your own thoughts, but throughout the book, you wrote, you wrote a lot about how being alone was important for you to heal. So what was going on there?
0: Well, part of my mission there was that I had never been alone. Mm -hmm. So I met the man who would be my husband when I was 18. And I felt like I needed to learn how to be alone if I wasn't going to be so scared of it. I needed to learn how to do it. And it's, that's a weird thing because a, a lot of people probably do know how to be alone, but I didn't. And so that was part of the motivation behind my taking this, you know, 13-day wilderness solo. Um, and then also, I think just, you know, having some space to, to discover who I was again. You know, rediscover things about me. What did I like? Um, What did I not like, you know, even, even just, you know, how late do I really normally want to stay up in my life now that I don't have to (laughs) sort of, you know, adjust to someone else? Little things like that, you know, that are so Mm -hmm. important, I think, on this process of um, regaining a sense of agency, regaining some self-confidence, moving forward with a new definition of of who you are. Mm. It's not just, you know, I'm a loser, which is kind of the first instinct, right? Mm-hmm. When someone dumps you. All
1: right. So, so uh, people at home, uh, keeping a scorecard. Uh, first, I guess, piece, piece of advice um, from Florence is be by yourself to kind of rediscover um, your identity, recreate your, your schedule, your habits, um, what you like, what you don't like. Um, you mentioned completing, this is something I also hadn't heard of, the need for cognitive closure scale. Uh, <laughs> what is that and, and did that help?
0: Well, I took a bunch of psychology tests and personality mm-hmm. tests as I was trying to rediscover, you know, who I was and also, you know, what might be helpful to me moving forward. So, um I think a lot of us when we end a relationship, we just want to be done with it. We want the full closure, you know. We want it to end. We want to be all better. We want to be fixed. And so that is a need for cognitive closure. And it turns out that some of us have more need for that than others, not just related to heartbreak, but related to all kinds of things. Um, And if you're someone who needs cognitive closure, um, you may not be open to new ideas or open to new experiences. And another thing I learned is that that openness, that curiosity for new things is actually linked to resilience Mm -hmm. and recovery. So ironically, your need for closure may be sort of preventing you from healing as quickly as you want. Whereas if you're just someone who can say, you know what, maybe I'm not going to have total closure and maybe that's okay. And maybe I'm going to like accept that there are mysteries and unknowns in the universe. Um, and, and that even some of those things are, are, are beautiful. Um, some of them are filled with awe, You know, I, I spent a lot of time in this book talking about the power of awe and the power of beauty to -hmm. help kind of bring us out of our kind of troubled soundtracks of our sad minds. Um, And so I think that's another big takeaway from the book.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So be open to uh, new opportunities and, and sort of re-examine this necessity that we have to, you know, have all of our experiences be closed in a tight little bow. Uh, you, you talk about your experience with um, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. My sister's is a um, cognitive psychologist, so, so she does quite a bit of this with oh, cool. um, P, uh, folks suffering from PTSD. What was your experience with uh, EMDR like?
0: Yeah, it was um, fascinating. I did a workshop for divorcing people. (laughs) It was sort of a weekend EMDR workshop. And um, during this workshop, what you do, it's sort of like exposure therapy in that you call up very painful memories you know, of the, of the divorce or the split or the fights you had or whatever. And, and you do this kind of bilateral movement at the same time. So like in our case, we were tapping right and left on our own shoulders. Um, And the idea there, no one really, I think knows exactly how this works, but it seems to take some of the um, big emotion out of the memories, So, um, you know, you do this tapping, it sort of connects different parts of your brain. So you're not just in this sort of like deep limbic emotional space, but you're in a kind of more cognitive space or whatever, who knows, but yeah, by the end of it, you feel a little bit less distress with those memories. Uh, And that's really what we're after.
1: And when you think about kind of all the different, um, strat, like methods and strategies that you tried, would you say EMDR, uh, was one of the more effective ones?
0: I think it was. And I mean, you know, therapy in general, I think can be really helpful if you have a therapist you like and who you trust and who um, is a good listener and all that. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you want to, you want to find a good fit. Um, So yeah, I think everything I did was a little bit helpful and also a little bit disappointing because I never found like the one magic bullet. Mm -hmm. Um, But cumulatively um, and, and I think especially the sort of beauty, nature, friends, you know, and time, of course, uh, really did not only pull me out, but, but it helped me gain meaning from the experience mm-hmm. so that I became, uh, I think, I think uh, more capable in some ways of uh, finding and expressing love than I was before the heartbreak.
1: Yeah I mean th- th- that's that's beautifully said it's not like any one of these can be a, a, a panacea right it's it's everything in in um in conjunction one of the other things that you tried uh which which was also I, I I found it I found it very interesting the uh, electrical shock treatment you received from uh, Erica Hornstein at UCLA. Can you explain what that was like and whether that's something that you uh, <laughs> think could be effective?
0: Yeah, so that, it wasn't electrical shock treatment. <laughs> um, it, what it was was an experiment to see how much nervous system activation I was still expressing when I looked at pictures of my ex um, about a year after the split. And so um I would look at a picture of my ex and a picture of my father and a picture of a stranger on the internet while getting electrical shocks. <laughs>
1: mm, right, then, right. Yeah. No, I, I think I, I think I misspoke. You weren't receiving actual electrical shocks. No, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. like,
0: you know, a, a lobotomy or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And 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 so that was revealing because it showed that, oh, actually I am still associating a lot of fear um with my ex. So -hmm. so that became a kind of another argument for, you know, not following your ex on social media, you know, not answering their texts in the middle of the night. I mean, there are are reasons for this kind of advice. And Mm -hmm. it's because our nervous systems still do feel kind of easily triggered by this person. Uh, And the electrical shocks was just sort of one way to show that.
1: Got it. Yeah. So, so it was more just, just reinforcing um, how important it is to desensitize, to not be exposed to reminders, right? Distancing yourself from the memories, like we've been sp- speaking about something else that a lot of people, uh, I guess there's, there's kind of a mixed consensus on whether or not this is healthy after a breakup, but it has to do with the, the idea of rebounding, almost going back to the prairie, the prairie voles. Uh And, and you mentioned re, uh, research that says that p- rebounding after breakup might be healthy. Um, that was the, uh, study at Queens College in 2014. So almost with that as as a lens, Florence, do you think for people listening that um, rebounding after a breakup could be effective?
0: Yeah, so there is a little bit of science now indicating that a rebound can be really helpful. You know, but it again, it's very I think individual dependent, like like your personality dependent, um, whether you feel safe doing it or not safe doing it, whether you find a person who you can trust. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to necessarily go out there and recommend it for people, but but there is some science showing that people who rebound after breakup do tend to report higher self-esteem, more self-confidence, and sort of an, an easier ability to detach from mm-hmm. their ex. So I thought that was really interesting because you often hear, you know, oh, rebounding's a terrible idea. But but actually the science suggests that it, it might be okay.
1: Yeah, that's not that's not surprising, especially what you said about self esteem. Like people, I think that's one of the first, um, you know, components of someone's identity that's harmed when you're going through a separation or or a breakup. So, yeah, I think I would agree with you on that. Um, Towards the end of the book, you talk about going back to decoupling. The Japanese have a ritual um, called a divorce ceremony to help people cope with the end of a marriage. Um, Is this something that that you explored?
0: Well, I actually really wanted to go to Japan to check it out in person, mm-hmm. but that's exactly when the pandemic hit. So, oh, didn't no. didn't get to see it, but I I like the idea of it, which is that it does create this big ritual, even kind of a party. People have a big divorce party, and there's catered food and there's a photographer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and uh, you know, in some of these rituals, you can hold a big mallet um with your ex or with somebody else and smash your wedding rings. <laughs> <laughs> And I just thought, well, that's, you know, why not, you know, why not kind of celebrate this, um, you know, put, put a marker on it and, um, it and move forward.
1: Well, I mean, unless you're going to send it to the museum, museum of broken (laughs) relationships, that's, that's so interesting. So, so a a divorce ceremony or a, um, a a divorce party kind of like celebrating the, the new beginning of, of divorce. I'd never, I'd never considered that. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the last thing I wanted to ask you, Florence, is the impact that time has on all this. You know, you know it in the beginning of the book, and people are familiar with this. The conventional wisdom is it takes six months for every year to get over um, a, a past uh, spouse or, or partner. In your case, for a 25 year marriage, that would have been you know, yeah. 10, 12 years. But later in the book, you note that the literature predicts that it takes three to four years for someone's emotional and physical health to return to baseline after a long marriage. So for people listening who are maybe going through a rough breakup, a divorce, a separation, you know, how long do you think it'll be for them until they feel like themselves again?
0: I think the general rule is it's going to take longer than you think. And what's helpful about knowing that is that it gives you a certain amount of patience and I think self-compassion. You know, don't get too frustrated if you are still, you know, thinking about this person, if you're still dreaming about this person. Um, you know, if you're still feeling issues with your self-esteem and so on, um, it's it, it's really a big blow and it takes a long time to get over. Um, I do think that you can speed this recovery up a little bit. I mean, if you try some of the things in my book, um, especially around, you know, beauty and um, seeking openness, I really do think that can be helpful. Um, but uh it's just, you know, it's not a quick fix.
1: No, I, I mean, I think that's, that's the lesson that, that I've learned from this. And, you know, you alluded earlier when we talked about all the different things that you tried in your recovery, like how it's not just any of these things in isolation. It's really the journey. And that's exactly why, as you said, like you, you don't want to erase the memories and zap yourself or take a pill and just be a whole person. It's like going through the process is, is what it sounds like helped you, helped you heal.
0: Yeah. And, and it can't, you know, if if you can kind of like shift your attitude to what have I learned and what am I taking forward from here? It can actually be a really generative and powerful and transformative experience.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I had a uh, relationship expert on uh, last year and, and she talked about how one of the problems that, uh, in Western culture as we look at uh, uh, a relationship that ends as a failure. Whereas right. in Eastern culture and other parts of the world, they look at it as a lesson. I think you might've even mentioned that when you talked about the Japanese ritual about like Americans would be averse to something like this um, because they don't see divorce or separation as a, as a good thing. Um, right. But to your point, looking at it as, as what did you learn? How did you grow? Right? Like, like, how can we frame this as a positive development?
0: Exactly. And how can we take control over you know what our life looks like moving forward which is also really important to our mental health
1: could not agree more. Uh, to everyone listening, you can purchase Florence's book, Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey uh, on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Really touching, poignant. So so much unconventional advice kind of turning the turning insights on their head. And, and as I alluded to, and, and there's a lot that we didn't cover in this conversation, but um, the Museum of Broken Relationships and the divorce ceremony and the, you know, Florence's travels around the world and her journey in, in nature and wilderness were um, so powerful. And, and, you know, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. Uh, for listeners, how, where can they go to follow you and um, follow your work, Florence?
0: Yeah, thank you so much for asking, Ricky. And it's been a real pleasure to be here. Um, I, my website's really easy to find. It's just FlorenceWilliams.com. Mm-hmm. There are links to um, the, the audiobook which we did, which is really fun, enhanced audiobook featuring a lot of actual voices um, and sound from, from my reporting, um, links to my social um, sites and um, links to buy the book. So thanks a lot.
1: Mm, fantastic. Yeah, I'm sure lots of my li- listeners are going to be checking that out. So once again, uh pleasure to talk to you. You know, you're you're uh, so inspiring and 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 I'm sure that you know people have have really enjoyed learning from you in this conversation. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Ricky. Take care.
1: So there you have it guys. That was my conversation with Florence Williams. You know, it was really incredible talking to her and, you know, hearing about her resilience and how she got through really like an impossible situation. We didn't even mention, uh, this is one of many things, I'm kicking myself, I didn't even talk to Florence about, the fact that she has children and how that impacted her her separation. And I actually really feel bad that I didn't bring that up because that's. I think that's such an important factor, right? Like as difficult and immensely painful and trying as a separation or breakup is, it just becomes so much more complicated when there are other people whose interests are at stake. Um, and in Florence's case, that included her children, which um, also made it so that her ex-husband had to be in her life to some capacity. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's much easier to separate yourself from someone when you don't have to see them or talk to them regularly. But it's very different when you have children. So right off the bat, um, <laughs> I wish that we had uh, – that I had addressed that. But I do want to um, talk about a couple of things um, that struck me from the book and from our conversation. The first thing uh, that Florence noted in the book, which I definitely agree with, is that a large part of healing from a breakup has to do with healing the traumatic memories. So when you think about you know, whether or not a breakup should be considered like a psychopathological disorder. Because I do think there is a legitimate argument that can be made that a breakup should go in the a DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, uh, for Psychological Disorders. Like, I do think you can make an argument, but it's like, how do we characterize it? What exactly is it? So I think maybe categorizing a breakup a painful, painful separation, I'm not talking about like your bo- your boyfriend ate the last drumstick out of the um, the bowl from KFC. No, I'm talking about like a real painful se- uh, you know, uh, separation after a long marriage or something. I think that could be classified as a traumatic memory disorder because at the end of the day, and this is something Florence says, heartbreak is trauma, much like people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder in other instances. And it affects you on all of the levels that trauma does, and it dismantles your identity. And so, for that reason, I think you can characterize heartbreak as a traumatic memory disorder, which is why some of the the treatment methods that uh, Florence went through, such as EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, are also those that are used on people with, um, you know, that are coping with trauma. So I think that that's pretty. I think that might be how, um, rather than just characterizing it as a, a form or manifestation of like or root cause rather of depression. Or generalized anxiety, uh, I think a trauma, traumatic memory disorder might be more um, more fitting. And then, yeah, I was just I was so struck by some of the things that I learned about from the book, like the Museum of Broken Relationships. I'm visiting the website right now. Just the idea that it's well it's temporarily closed. Uh, well, actually, I actually, hold the phone. There's a Museum of Broken Relationships, excuse me, in California that's temporarily closed. I wonder if that's the same as croatia it was founded yeah wow um it's temporarily closed probably due to covid but i'm looking at their collection now it's a physical and virtual space created to treat and share heartbreak i wonder if this is related to the one in croatia BrokenShips.com. hmm yeah it looks like this the looks like there's two um locations there's one in la and then the one which i think is is significantly more has more traffic is the one in zagreb croatia museum broken relationships and if you go on the google reviews this is very cool i think you could spend all day reading these it it just shows like little displays of the things that people drop off at the museum it's the funniest and saddest museum not recommended for little kids okay too many things to touch pet friendly maybe i'll bring penny there and then it says it just shows kind of some of the odd things that people leave behind. Someone left behind their ex-husband's scab. That's um very interesting. 27-year-old scab from my first love's wound. Someone else left behind, what is this? Mobile phone. It was 300 days too long. He gave me his mobile phone so I couldn't call him anymore. Visitors can, can experience someone's love story and have a good laugh. Someone says, I don't think it's cool to romanticize breakups, emotional pain, cause some fragile souls, might get stuck in this. Maybe add an info stand with techniques for faster. Yeah, I I, w- I would agree with that. Shoes. What is this? Very cool. If I ever... A holy water bottle shape is the Virgin Mary. Yeah, you could spend all day just looking at some of the things that people donated. Uh, if I ever make it to Croatia, I'm definitely gonna going to check this out. Really powerful stuff. And I think, as I said to... Florence, you know, this is impactful in that it allows you to kind of see that you're not alone in going through these experiences. Like, these are common, like, universal shared experiences. Like, regardless of who you are, where you're from, how much money you have, like, everyone, everybody hurts, right? Like, like R.E.M. says. And I think museums like this kind of provide a reminder that, you know, this is a shared and universal experience. And also the storytelling function that we talked about. The fact that, you can, like, make your breakup, make your relationship into a story, and there's there's humor to this, too, right? It's kind of funny. So I thought that was really cool, and something else that Florence wrote about we didn't get time to, to chat about is the epidemic of loneliness that we're experiencing around the world, particularly in wealthy countries. People are dating less and less, and they're having less sex than ever before, and this is not a surprise, right? We're all um, you know two steps away from the metaverse and uh, we're jumping from little screen to big screen to medium screen um, that that's not something that I'm this is not the first time I'm <laughs> saying that, but what's interesting is Florence mentions the Japanese in particular and the Japanese have the least sex overall it would seem compared to most countries. Although pornography is popular in Japan, and sex dolls, which which I've talked about in the pod before, the Japanese have a phrase for herbivore men, Soshoku Danshi, and those are uh, people who are not interested in flesh or who rarely date. They also coined a word in Japan for elderly who die alone in their apartments, Kodu Kushi, and for young people who refuse to leave their rooms, Hikikomori. And in the UK... 41% of people say that the TV or a pet is their top choice of company. The country ranks second in the world for percentage of single-person households. So 41% of people, that means 59% of people would prefer to be around other humans. 41% are like, I'm just good sitting on the TV with my dog. Uh, I'm just good sitting watching TV with my dog. That's uh, a little relatable. And they rank second in the world for percentage of single-person households. So so single-person households, meaning it's just you alone. So Sweden is first, and then UK, and then Japan, and the U.S. These are like the loneliest countries in the world. Uh, a l- couple more stats for you. Um, in the U.K., 20% of British adults report feeling lonely most of the time, and they're more likely to feel this way, surprisingly, if they live in a city rather than the suburbs or a rural area. And that kind of shows that like being around more people, um, walking through like crowded streets or... You know, going into a, a crowded bar that doesn't necessarily make you less lonely. Sometimes you feel even more isolated. Um, so I think that that's not necessarily surprising. And as a result of of this, you know, as, as Florence said, there was so much uh, concern that public officials created the parliamentary post, the Minister of Loneliness. And this is something I, I, that I think the U.S. should lean into. The Minister of Loneliness. Let's let's look into this. Who is so? Japan has one, uh, Tetsushi Sakamoto. And then there's Tracy Crouch. Do we have one in America? It doesn't look like it. Uh, but – oh, actually, I'm sorry. It was Tracy Crouch. Now uh, Then it was Mims Davies. And now it's Baroness Baron. The U.S. needs a Secretary of Loneliness. Apparently someone else wrote about this on The Hill, an article by Alex Smith. Book groups, chatty cafes, pet projects, small activities that bring people together. Community projects, things like that, I think – I think we would all benefit from from having, you know, from taking a moment to talk to our neighbors, to ask people like, "How's your day going?" Little things like that. There's also one more thing I saw. I wanted to. What has the UK's Minister of Loneliness done to date? So this is something um, that Florence might have noted. So we have nationwide adoption of a way to measure loneliness, beginning with a single question: How often do you, do we you feel lonely? How often do you feel you lack companionship? How often do you feel left out? A framework to improve and connect social services through things like broadening the use of social prescribing where professionals refer people experiencing loneliness to supports like involvement in the arts and community group. Communities that promote social connection through reimagined community spaces, transportation, housing and technologies and public health campaigns that raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding loneliness. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I would love to see something like this come to America. I think like if I ever you know, was involved in politics once upon a time it was my dream to you know, find my way into some public office someday. But these are the kinds of things that I would be all for. You know, like I think number one would be all about um, raising awareness uh, and destigmatizing mental health. I think that would be the most important thing. Uh, <laughs> um, and then number two, it's really tight between bringing more awareness and and mobilizing people around climate change and also support for. Better funding and, um, you know, just more generalized support for education and paying our teachers. Um, and then for the third issue, either more regulation for uh, technology companies such that things like smartphone addiction and endless um, timelines and, you know, just more, just um, making sure that we, we do what we can to limit those things. And then also... Minister of loneliness. So that's my, those are my, uh, those are my campaign points. So check back in, in 30 years and uh, see where I'm at if I find my way into any, any sort of positional influence down the line. Yeah. And like, I mean, why do, you know, why do I think, why do I think the world is so lonely? I alluded to the fact that we're interacting with devices um, and less with each other, you know, just walk into a, a library, a bookshop, a cafe, go into any restaurant, you know, and the number of people, this I mean it's dark but next time you you find yourself out to eat take a moment and just do a, a 360 degree turn I guess you can't turn your neck like that but do like a, a you know 100 degree turn on each end and then take a look at how many people are staring at their phones in silence you know and then on top of that streaming is you know has never been better <laughs> just listen to a bonus episode I did uh, uh, a couple months back about all the television that I'm, I was imbibing over break. Um, video games, which I stay far away from because they're so, so addictive. The technology behind that is, is you know, endlessly captivating. And then you have AR, VR, and uh, the fact that now, you know, the metaverse is, is becoming a reality, no pun intended. You know, these aren't real connections. These are superficial. And so I don't see this this loneliness epidemic becoming any less pronounced in the coming years there's also something florence highlights just on this topic is the idea that there's gender differences in loneliness women she reports are more likely conversing with one another face to face so imagine like getting a drink or getting a cup of coffee with with a girlfriend uh, if you're a woman and sitting across from her and being able to have a face-to-face conversation for men it's harder to imagine two men um you know two heterosexual men um, sitting face to face uh having like a an intense conversation they prefer interacting with each other more at indirect angles so shoulder to shoulder so maybe sitting at the bar and florence says well doing an activity so maybe um you know working out together or doing like a community project or something like that i don't know why i was thinking like digging a hole <laughs> it's the most like like manly thing i can think of so yeah i mean that that i think those are a couple kind of like key takeaways that i had about being lonely and I I do think this episode you know apply uh is I do think this episode is applicable to most people um because breakups are sort of inevitable but um if not like everyone has felt lonely at some point or another you know like (laughs) I think I felt lonely multiple times today it's just (laughs) I mean that's part of the reason by the way that I got a puppy I guess she's not a puppy now she's like a, a dog uh that's part of the reason I got a dog and that's part of the reason most people most Americans have dogs I think I was I'm taking a class on family law this semester and I think my professor was talking about how in America we have more dogs than any other country. I did an episode on pets a while back. The number of households that have dogs in America uh close to 50 million. The number of households that have cats 30 million. Man's best friend, average number o- of dogs owned per household 1.6. So yeah, we love, you know, Americans love dogs globally. Dog ownership um close to half a billion. So why do you think that is? Because everyone's, everyone's grappling with this loneliness thing. But uh, a couple other things that I found really interesting, uh, and this is kind of random, but I, I jotted it down. Whenever I like, read the books in preparation for a podcast interview, I jot down things that are really interesting to either ask the guests or to bring to your attention if I didn't have a chance to do that. And one of the things that, that I noted was Florence wrote that when we're warm— our bodies release more natural opioids that make us feel good. So uh, studies have shown that when you're holding a hot beverage, like if you're holding a hot cup of coffee or a hot tea, um, people subconsciously behave with more warmth and more generosity towards others than if they're holding a cold or room temperature beverage. When people are sitting in a warm room versus a cold room, they report feeling closer to the experimenter, whereas when subjects are asked to recall an experience in which they were rejected, Usually they estimate the room temperature to be colder than people recalling inclusive events. So like if I were to ask you right now, you know, think about an experience where you felt rejected. You know, maybe you like asked someone on a date and they said no. You asked a a man or a woman for their number at a bar and they said no. Um, You asked someone to hang out and they said they were busy. If I ask you right now, what was the temperature in the room when, you know, what when that experience took place and you kind of ponder it you're more likely to say it was chilly it it was cold um then it was warm just because i think that well i think first of all we do have almost like a uh psychological tendency like a cognitive heuristic to associate good feelings with warmth and bad with warmth and bad feelings with cold but i also think there is something to this that uh our bodies release more of those natural opioids when we're warm and that's so, and that 's why that when dealing with breakups and separation and grief, um, you should do things like take hot baths, have a hot thermos of tea handy that's what what Florence did. have a heated blanket at night i mean i don't I don't have a heated blanket uh, my sister has a weighted blanket that i've uh, I've used a couple of times, which is very cool, and also i mean I guess my only gripe with 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 that my only gripe with my own with my own suggestion is that a lot of the longevity research says that sleeping in a cold room is is slightly more advantageous for health outcomes so that one i'm not so sure of but but definitely you know having surrounding yourself with physical warmth i think is is key something else i wanted to note is i think you know i think there are cultural differences to how we view breakups in america versus other places in the world. And I kind of mentioned this to Florence at one point towards the end when she was talking about the Museum of, of Broken Relationships. But if relationships don't work out in America, um, then it's a failure. You know, it's like, ah, oh, you know, we broke up. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. Oh, that's horrible. That's, you know, let me know if you need anything. Or, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't talk to her anymore. We're not, we're not dating. Oh my gosh, that, that's, that's so terrible. But other parts of the world, in Asia, for example, a lot of those stories end in gratitude. Even I mean, even by the way, even the, the, the language, we broke up. It just it broke. Like like what does it mean to break something? Instead of like we we separated, we went our separate ways. I bet, you know what? I bet that's an English thing, an American thing. Break up etymology. A break up, a dissolution of connected from the verbal expression, blah blah blah. Break bread. We know that. The verbal phrase was used of plow land, later of groups, of things, also of marriages. Break it up as a command to stop a fight is recorded from 1936. I don't think I'm be able to find who invented breakup. Who knows? Anyway, uh, that was that was kind of a, a fruitless endeavor of me trying to find out where the, where the phrase breakup came from. In, in Asia, uh, and you see this with, with the stories of decoupling in Japan, the divorce ceremonies, and smashing the wedding ring with with the mallet, um, it's a celebration. It's it's a new beginning. It's looking back fondly on what you have, and um, you know. But in America, I don't think you see as much of that gratitude. I think that the stories are more self centered. You know, if if you ask a friend why did a relationship end in America, I think you're more likely to get a story that's one sided. You know, that's oh I was absolutely perfect, and the other person was flawed. The other person was selfish or jealous or controlled. And look. Sometimes that's true. You know, sometimes you got to get out of a relationship because the other person isn't being, you know, isn't treating you right. But more often than not, <laughs> as they say, like it takes two. And so I think it'd be healthier for us to look at relationships in America as more two-sided, as not being one person's fault or one person being blameworthy. And also like being grateful for time you spent together. Um, looking back with gratitude. You know, like I said, looking at every relationship as a lesson um, and taking it with you to the next stage of your life, you know, ultimately, like it's just this person was a chapter or was multiple chapters, but they're not your whole story. And so I think I think kind of being cognizant of those distinctions with how we view breakups in different cultures and different regions is kind of helpful to, to put that in perspective. I guess one of the last things to, to mention is this whole idea of like a pill for heartbreak. And and to me, that almost reminds me of like a Sama or Soma from um, Brave New World of like a pill that makes you feel good that just erases your emotional capacity. I just don't think that – I think as as Florence and I talked about, grieving and going through loss is what makes us human and what makes us appreciate having love. And I think if we just eradicate that, if we experience the highest of highs in love, and then go through a breakup, and then take a pill, like, uh, take a pill and then immediately feel better than what, you know, the I feel like the highs wouldn't be at high anymore. I feel like the despair, despondency, and, and the the letdown of a breakup is what makes love feel so good. You know what I mean? So it's like, yes, it would be better to not have to feel uh, the, you know, the lows that, that come with a separation and come with heartbreak, but I don't see that, you know, in the long run being beneficial. I, I I do think like Dr. Donaldson alluded to, and uh, Florence wrote about in the future, I do, I do believe that there will be medicines on the market. You know, you'll see infomercials, you know, are you going through a rough breakup? Do you find it difficult to eat and sleep and watch Netflix? Why don't you like, you know, have you considered a pill? Like, I definitely see that as a way of alleviating the discomfort and getting on with your life. But I just don't know if, if that's, you know, if that's, um, that's what's best. I mean, I mentioned the beginning of the episode that, uh, I would share, um, some of my personal experiences, um, having gone through, uh, breakups and hang on. I had to grab a uh, cup of coffee (laughs) because it might be a little while. Um, So if you stuck around with me for the last 90 plus minutes, uh, I've talked about heartbreak a lot in the abstract for this entire episode, but I figured it would help add some perspective and some color to this conversation if I imbued it with my personal experience as well. And you know, I'm I'm 29, I'm going to be 30 uh, at the time of this episode next month, um and so obviously like i've had <laughs> i've had breakups i mean either you get married to the person that you're in your first relationship with or you're in a polygamous kind of situation uh, other than that like everyone experiences a breakup and um i think for me what makes it particularly agonizing is the fact that i have obsessive compulsive disorder um and so really my entire life when i've been either rejected by a, a woman, a girl that I'm interested in, or I've undergone like a breakup. It's been hard for me to take my mind off of it. You know, I mean, I just remember back in high school, um, uh, like after my first relationship ended between high school and college, <clears throat> I I would just journal about it every single day. And I would listen to like sad songs on my iPad Nano. You know, I was <laughs> super emo. Um, and I'd just ruminate. Over like the best, you know, with rosy retrospection, right? Like the best times just replaying over and over in my head like I was the main character in some romantic movie. Or, um, you know, like replay conversations that uh, I had and think about like all of the possible things that I could have said. Or, you know, drafting, like drafting text messages um, and not sending them. Or actually, I mean, I, I think I got... I got more mature, like, uh, you know, had more uh, impulse control later on. And I think ear- earlier I would just, like, send <laughs> send messages, say whatever I was thinking. But as I got older, it got um, – I think I-, I learned from those experiences. But, like, I don't know. When I was in uh, – the longest relationship I ever had was a five-year relationship when I was young in college that ended when I was 24, so almost six years ago. Uh, it feels like a lifetime at this point you know, so much has happened in my life since, uh, 2016. Um, and for a while, I think going through that, yeah, you know, I, I think I was like bitter and sad and kind of angry. And, um, maybe I spent a lot of time in that protest phase that we talked about in the episode, but I don't know. Now I think I'm just very grateful for the lessons that I learned. You know, I think that relationship taught me how to be, um, just like a, a a a good boyfriend and a good partner. Um, And, you know, and, and for a long time, like I, I was just seriously depressed in um, coping with being on my own after the end of that relationship, because I did live with my partner for like a year and a half at the end of the relationship. And so it was challenging being on my home, uh, being on my own. And I really related to like a lot of the stuff in the book that Florence talked about with like everything, you know, a lot of objects, like reminding me of my partner and um, just being surrounded by memories. And I mean, when you live with someone and when you're in a relationship, five years, I can't even imagine 25 years in a marriage and having children, but even five years, like every experience you have, you know, every, everything you see, everything you hear, everyone, you know, major life events in the last five years. Like it reminds you of them. And, you know, I i was in therapy for a while. I leaned on my family for a long time. Um and my friends. I uh I read so many self-help books, like a nauseating amount a number of self-help books. And I used to spend a lot of time on Reddit on the message boards, just sharing my story and um advice from <clears throat> complete strangers who were who opened their hearts to me and I think having that community was really, was really important for me. Like, just just a community of people who have been through what I've been through. I think I mean, you know, in a minute I can share kind of like my uh, tips, my unsolicited (laughs) advice for going through breakup or separation. But um, yeah, like having a community of people who have been through it, you know. And actually, like what helped me in addition to getting advice was giving advice. Like I'd go on Reddit and people would share stories of their heartbreak. And I would just tell them like it gets better, you know? Every day it gets better. Like, try this, try this, try this. And helping people who are in similar positions to me was really uh was really powerful. Actually, like this this is pretty personal, but uh there were so many days where when I was going through this um this this breakup where I I just like I was so I think I was so dependent on other people like I could not stand to be on my own, to the point where like I would have like a, a rotating rotating like phone bank like I would call one of my sisters she'd pick up I would call another sister and I would call another friend another friend like I always had to be talking to someone I was just so horrified to be my own which is um something that I've dealt with and grown <laughs> grown from in the last six years but like I don't know <clears throat> in particular I was very obsessed with um having visual reminders that I, I was like, you know, visual reminders that I was like loved and cared for and that I was a valuable person. I, um, I would put quotes on my wall. Um, I bet I still have them. Let's see. I think I still have some of them on my desk. Yeah, I have a pile of them right here. I still have them on my desk. Do something today that your future self will, will thank you for. Don't let yesterday take up too much of today. Um, Worry is a misuse of imagination. Que sera, sera, Whatever will be, will be. That's one of my favorites. And I would just put these on my wall. Um, that way the first thing that I saw every morning was these positive affirmations. I actually spent, um, I spent a good amount of time making this huge poster, 100 Guiding Principles for Healthy, Worry-Free Living. On one of the past episodes of the pod, I want to say like a year ago or something, maybe around like Thanksgiving, um, if you've listened to most of the episodes, you'll probably remember, I actually read some of these principles. But I wrote out, and I have notoriously bad handwriting, so believe me, this took me months to do. But there was a book, Don't Smite the Small Stuff, by... By Richard Carlson and I wrote out all of the guiding principles you know live this day as if it were your last and schedule time for your inner work and avoid weatherproofing all these things I wrote out on my wall every day and it became kind of like an artistic project because like I said my handwriting is so bad and it took so much time to like get the calligraphy right and when I finally put it up like it just it was like a, a like a visual representation of, of how much work I put into bettering myself and um, I've actually had it in all of my apartments since 2016. It's been six years. And a lot of people, like when I have friends over or family, they're just like, what, <laughs> what in the, what in the hell is this? Uh, but it's meaningful for me cause it's like the, you know, the artifact, almost like the museum of broken relationships, the artifact of what I went through. I, I mean, I explored meditation. I, I, I recorded walking meditations that I could listen to my, you know, listen when I was, uh walking to work I tried to meditate every day to relieve anxiety like it it was hard like I in terms of time right because we talked about uh in the episode like how much time it takes to get get over I mean get over is kind of weird. how much time it takes to like recover your emotional and physical and spiritual and mental health after a breakup I don't even know I mean it took this I mean the worst of it the worst of kind of the depression that I experienced was like the second, like six months of 2016. And then by the end of 2017, I think I had recovered. I think it might've taken a year and a half to do most of the hard work of getting over that relationship or getting past that relationship. Um, year and a half for a five year relationship. So I mean, six months for every year something like, I think it was six months for every year we talked about in the episode. So so it would have taken two and a half years. Yeah, I guess that that's about right. But yeah, most of the hard work was the first six months, and then. But I continued, you know, kind of bettering myself, and recovering for a year and a half after that. And I didn't really date date much in that time. You know, in terms of like rebound relationships, I know that in the episode, I, I there was a quote that there's some science that people who rebound after a breakup tend to report higher self-esteem and self-image. Florence mentioned. I don't know. I honestly like I I hear I heard her on the science. I don't know if I'd advise that. Like it, it took a long time for my heart to be open to the possibility of dating someone else after that relationship ended. Yeah, but like now, looking back, as I said long a long time ago, but I'm at a point where I can kind of s- distance myself from the from the memories and the events and kind of look back objectively and. Reflect on what I learned and and how I grew, and I have been in you know other serious relationships since then. And to be honest, I thought that breaking up would get easier after that. Like I thought once I finally, at the end of twenty seventeen, once I finally successfully navigated that breakup, and once I looked in the mirror and I was like, I'm I'm me again. I finally like restored. I'm a whole person. <clears throat> I thought it would get easier, but it never does. You know, that's I think. I think Florence would agree with me like you know when you make yourself fully vulnerable to someone and you let your guard down after having undergone a painful separation or breakup and then only to go through it again you know it, it's it's brutal you know even even like I I was in like a um a 7 month relationship in the last couple of years that that ended and I had a lot of trouble with that, you know, and even though that paled in comparison in terms of intensity or duration to my, my five-year relationship, it was challenging, you know, and, and it was challenging in part because a lot of those same feelings of inadequacy and fear of being alone, like those came back in my seven-month relationship um, or excuse me, in my seven-month breakup. So it's like you, you, you work hard to get through one breakup and one separation and feel comfortable and confident being on your own. And then you start again with someone new and then that ends, you know what I mean? And it's almost like what's, you know, and and sometimes you think like, what's the point? Uh, And this is something Florence experienced. And then Helen Fisher was like, well, the point is she told her like, love is the most beautiful feeling in the world. And it's, it's worth it, you know, but it is, it is a struggle. And, you know for people listening who are going through that now or will be going through that at some point i guess the advice that i would give you based on my <laughs> i probably have more experience with breakups than a lot of people my age a couple things i think first of all staying off your phone i think is is most important or at least reducing screen time this is this is advice that i have for literally all of like all of life you know, I think it can be sad when you wake up in the morning if you're in a long relationship and you're used to getting good morning texts or you're used to you know messaging someone as soon as you wake up. It can be sad to see the empty idle screen that just says the time and your your wallpaper so breaking the habit of checking your phone first thing in the morning um and just not being on your phone like not staring at your your cell phone um reflexively picking it up multiple times throughout the day. Try to like schedule intervals of time where like every couple hours you check your phone, you respond to messages, then turn it off or put it away. So I think that was really important. Um and obviously, you know, staying off social media, like delete Instagram for a while, delete Facebook, uh, delete TikTok, delete Twitter. Um it actually like helped me to recenter myself. Um that's actually I, I think that's around the time when I started getting into digital minimalism and phone detox and all that fun stuff was when I was um, 2016, 2017 going through that first breakup. But yeah, so number one, uh, minimizing phone time. Number two is journaling. Uh, I I cannot say enough how important it was for me to just sit in a quiet room with a legal pad or notepad or notebook and just scribble out my feelings and or, or or i mean typing or just typing your feelings on a word doc or on uh you know text file or a, a post it on on your mac whatever that to me is like so cathartic just getting all of your feelings onto paper and then just like putting it aside maybe throwing it out maybe ripping it up um in another episode i talked about the therapeutic value of just ripping up um Pieces of paper and, and how how nice that would feel. The old school wisdom of writing a letter to your to your ex to your your former spouse former partner. Not sending. I mean that that works too. So writing and journaling. Number two, number three, like going outside. Uh, I think for me, I didn't have a dog in 2016, 2017 when I went through this, but I spent a lot of days just holed up inside, um, especially on the weekends because I had to go to work, right? But when I didn't have work, I would just not leave my apartment, and I think you know having a dog now like forcing me to go outside every morning whether i like it or not like that helps me like you know sunshine sunlight you, you can't deny the health benefits of of that kind of exposure every day so forcing yourself outside to go on walks without your phone of course i think is really critical along those lines like exercise it's one of those things where just if you can somehow drag yourself to the gym um and get that endorphin rush and that flood of feel good dopamine and you know, get your heart up, and then activate the relaxing uh, hormones associated with the parasympathetic nervous system. Like you're going to feel great after that. So exercise, taking showers. I know, <laughs> I know. Some of this is like kind of sounding like common sense at that point, but like same thing. You know, it's uh, if you're staying at home all weekend, you can just you know lie in bed and get all sticky and gross. Like you know, force yourself to get into the shower, and you'll you'll feel great afterwards. Something that I learned after my most recent breakup that I think is really helpful for me, and I I started recommending this to people on Reddit because sometimes I still go on the community forums and try to help people with breakups, um, is not listening to music. I mean, I think more than most people in general, like I prefer listening to sad songs than happy songs. (laughs) Something about like, the, you know, angst and, you know, the feelings of missing someone or having, like, a broken heart. It's just way more relatable, even if in turn what I'm doing is, like, reinforcing these negative feelings. Uh, and also I think a lot of the best musicians make sad songs um, as opposed to, like, feel good music. But that's that's a whole another conversation. But the point is, like, I think I would, when I go through a breakup, listen to very, like, emotional, like, emo, if that's still a thing songs, almost like a a vestige of how I was when I was getting through, um, you know, going through these, these feels in high school. And as a result, like if you walk around and your AirPods are in and you're listening to, you know, the script, they're, uh, (laughs) they're, they're, they're one of the sad ones or, um, any, I mean, any of the country music, Rascal Flats, uh, Little Big Town, I think One Direction has a bunch of sad songs. Um, Sam Smith, uh, Parachute, Ronnie Day, I listen to a lot of, a lot. Of, you know, you guys probably don't even know um, Ronnie Day, but indie musician, I listen to a lot of, um, when I was younger, or Guster, I mean, if you listen to these these musicians, and you walk around, you know, you, you walk around, and the world is colored by the words of Chris Martin singing, like, singing Fix You, uh, which is kind of like a funeral song, of course your your mood's not gonna be elevated. Of course you're gonna stay sad. And sometimes, I guess the caveat to that is, I do think in the beginning stages of a breakup, you do need to grieve. You do need to let, let yourself feel pain and feel sadness. But at some point you gotta pull yourself out of that. And so I'll say like listening to music, I think ended up being a crutch for me. And it was only in the last year year and a half that I saw this in myself and I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to listen to music. I'm going to go outside on my walks. Um, I'm going to go to the gym and just not listen to anything and just be present. I think first of all, that helps with mindfulness with, you know, being in the moment. And, um, it also helps to recenter yourself. So you're not a million miles away and it helps your mood. You know what I mean? Cause you're not you're not listening to to stuff like that. So in general, now I tell close friends and I tell family that if you're going through a breakup, do not listen to music. Just like keep your AirPods, like put your AirPods away. Just don't use them for like a month or two. And sometimes, I mean, even I think that advice is applicable, like in just in general, um, to you know not be listening to music or listening to podcasts all the time. I didn't. I don't know if I listened to pod. Th- th- that's a good question. I can't remember if I listened to podcasts. I might have. You know what it is? might have just not listened to anything. So here I am, a podcaster, telling you not to listen to podcasts when you're going through a breakup. So that would be another piece of advice that I would have. Um, And then kind of rearranging your space. I can't remember where I heard this, but especially if you're in a relationship where you share a space with someone or if you have an apartment or a condo um, or house and your partner was always sleeping over or staying with you, a lot of the you know, the furniture is going to remind you of them, you know, sitting at your desk, watching TV on the couch. Um, so do something to change the space up. Uh, that might mean moving your bed to the other side of the apartment, um, the other side of the bedroom. That might mean getting rid of a desk. It might mean getting new furniture. It might mean taking everything off your walls and putting new stuff up. Um, I think do something to signify visually in your surroundings that you're starting a new chapter. Um, of course, you can always move out and move in somewhere else. That's I think that would be the cleanest way. Just get a new apartment, get a new house. But of course, you can't always do that. So I think that, that that's really helpful, like changing your surroundings. And then, I mean, the the basic stuff, right? Like therapy is so critical. Um, having a support system, which I mentioned, talking to your siblings or your best friends. But I will say, another caveat here, you don't want to like rehash and, and kind of recircle the same facts and same feelings ad infinitum like at some point you have to move forward. So I think yeah you can absolutely lean on your your siblings, your close friends, your support system for for weeks for maybe months. but if it's like it's been a year and you're still telling and you're still kind of like sitting on the phone with them for hours blaming yourself or revisiting the same conversations or the same memories, I don't think that that's productive or healthy so I think the onus is on you to kind of say all right I have you know talked I could I've talked this out as much as I could talk this out like now it's time to just not talk about it anymore if that makes sense like because as much as it is you do need to get all your feelings on paper uh, like I said with journaling or out into the open sometimes it's like overkill sometimes especially if you're obsessive like me or even if you don't have OCD, if you just have an obsessive personality and you just um, you just keep talking and talking and talking, it's just you're not getting anywhere. You're just reinforcing the other person, just enabling this obsession, which is ultimately what it turns into. So my, my final, kind of a final review of uh, the Ricky Rosen heartbreak um, tips are staying off your phone and social media, one. Um, Actually, I mean, if we're doing it in order of importance, I would say number one, not listening to music, so put the AirPods away. Number two, rearranging your space, your apartment, so moving your furniture, getting new furniture, tearing stuff off your walls, I think is really important. Number three, staying off your phone as much as possible um, and staying off social media. Number four, writing and journaling as much as you can. Um, Number five, uh, going outside. Number six, exercising. Number seven, taking showers. And... Number eight, uh, therapy, and, of course, having a support system. I think all those things are are really, really critical. And, like, you know, as much as people say, like, time heals all wounds, it does, but you still have to put the work in. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not going to, you know, time heals all wounds, but if you just go to sleep in 2016 and don't acknowledge or deal with any of your feelings, you're not going to wake up two years later and suddenly feel great about your former relationship. You do need to actually deal with the hurt. And that's why, by the way, um, Florence and I talked about gender differences and how like men uh, have more trouble or men sometimes have poor health outcomes in the long run because I think a lot of men just, I mean, this is kind of a stereotype, but it's its true. They just refuse to deal with their feelings and they compound and um, eventually it all comes pouring out. You know, and they're in their 40s or 50s. So don't let that happen to you. Just deal with Um, How are you feeling emotionally? And then move forward. Um, Wow, this went on for a lot longer than I I thought. This might be the longest post-episode debrief I've ever had because I think it's going on an hour, (laughs) an hour after my conversation with Florence ended that I've just been rambling on about heartbreak and relationships. I mean, quite honestly, like, I could talk about this stuff all day. Like, I could sit and speak to you guys for another two hours about... Um, my feelings about on relationships and my experiences with relationships, uh, I might have acknowledged before, but for a long time I wanted to be a psychologist, and um, you know, I often wonder, like, did I do a disservice to myself or to you know to the world by pursuing law instead? Because this is something I'm probably more passionate about, quite honestly. Um, and I just had a lot to say. Like, I, I've I don't think I've ever spoke so openly about my personal experiences with relationships or breakups on the podcast before. I mean this is twenty twenty two, this is like year four of the podcast, nineteen, twenty, twenty. And um this like I said, this is the first time I'm talking about this stuff. So if it's if it's gone on for a long time and if you're bored or sad or depressed, <laughs> um, then I apologize and uh and I'll I'll make it up to you guys next week. I mean last week last week was light and goofy and silly. We had the comedian impressionist on doing the doing his his incredible impersonations of people like uh, Trump and Biden um, this week was a little bit more of a downer um, <laughs> talking about heartbreak and all that so I promise next week Next week, maybe we'll do like a bonus episode or something to um, you know lighten everyone's everyone's spirits to uplift you after this week's trials and tribulations but yeah I want to thank Florence Williams for coming on to talk about her book uh, definitely recommend all of you guys check it out Heartbreak uh, Personal and Scientific Journey and maybe I'll leave you with uh, <laughs> this is so corny uh, skip ahead if, if 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 you've heard enough but maybe I'll leave you with a couple uh, quotes that that, um, that I think are pretty powerful uh, when we talk about like love and loss um, here's a good one if you've never felt your soul being torn apart you've never loved anyone with all your heart there's no person attributed to that, but that's pretty beautiful. The risk of love is loss, and the price of loss is grief. But the pain of grief is only a shadow when compared with the pain of never risking love. <laughs> this is funny. There's actually a, a quote from WandaVision, which is <laughs> it's like a, a Marvel like superhero show. But somehow there was like a kernel of, of just incredible sage advice from Vision in the show. He says, uh, what is grief if not love persevering? That's very beautiful. I don't know if he even made that up or the show. even made that up. <laughs> this one's really interesting. I'm going to, this, this will be the last one. Uh, you have to keep breaking your heart until it opens. That's by Rumi. You have to keep breaking your heart until it opens. So I'll leave you guys with that. Um, again, when I started this episode, I did not know what it would turn into. So appreciate you guys bearing with me for the last two plus hours. Um, not sure if next week is going to be a bonus or if you're going to hear from one of the very exciting guests I have in the pipeline, but keep it locked here for more Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast, and you can write to the pod at Nervous Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, if you're going to buy a pet prairie bowl... Make sure you buy two because they're monogamous creatures. (laughs) Take care and stay nervous.